0: What all of that means is I'm old. That's what it means. So, okay. let me read for you two verses. Come from the fifth chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter five, verses five and six. Um, and one of the elders said to me, said to John, who in a vision has entered into the court of heaven, one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, a lamb standing, standing as though... It had been slain. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, by your grace and mercy to us, may you lead and guide us into truth, encourage us, challenge us. Lord, build us up and show us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So, Covenant College students, How many times have you sung these words? All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. It's quite a statement. When you sing those words, I hope you realize you're not singing about giving your life, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You're not singing about giving all of that to an idea or to some esoteric ideal. When you sing those words, you're singing about giving your all to a real man to a real man. Jesus, the god man. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, risen from the dead, ascended, reigning, and coming again. Now, if you say I know that, and that's what I mean when I sing those words, then I hope you understand, I think you probably do, that many would view such words of commitment on your part as sheer foolishness. I mean, how can you believe the testimony of some ancient documents about some strange prophet in the far Middle East? How can you believe what these ancient manuscripts tell you about Jesus, especially in light of the fact that those those same writings are, are just so out of step. They are just so bigoted and out of step with our modern ways of thinking and living. And so, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you take the Bible so seriously? Why do you view it as being the Word of God? The word of the one true God whose truths are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 teaches that you believe because the Holy Spirit gives you a heart in tune with God so that you know this true truth, you believe the message of this inerrant word. You believe what it teaches and therefore you believe what it tells you about Jesus and about how your Lord and King and Master would have you to live. It's interesting when you read the record of Jesus in the Gospels. Clearly, unmistakably, Jesus embraced the Old Testament as being the Word of God. And furthermore, he promised his apostles that he would send the Holy Spirit to inspire them as they wrote about him and explicated the good news of the gospel. So, therefore, knowing all that Jesus believed about the Old Testament, therefore, if one were to reject the Scriptures as being the Word of God, then one has to reject Jesus. He has to reject Jesus because of Jesus' testimony concerning this book if this book, in fact, is not the Word of God. And, of course, many do. I mean, many view Jesus as either a legend or a story fabricated by his followers to, to justify their allegiance to him. And, of course, You know, there are many other so-called sacred scriptures in this world. I've read quite a few of them. None of them compare to the scripture. And I mean that in this perspective. Our scriptures were written over a period Of 1,400 years by 40 or more authors, and yet they, with one voice, anticipate Jesus' coming, they tell about his coming, and they further explain the importance and significance of his coming and promised return. Now, I could stand here and I could offer you many examples of this amazing truth of how Scripture These scriptures written over a period of 1,400 years by by 40 or more authors, I, I could offer you countless illustrations of how these scriptures anticipate the coming of Jesus, tell his story, then further explain its importance and significance. Now, personally, I have to tell you, there is one lecture I am eager to hear. I am eager one day to hear firsthand exactly what it is Jesus told the two on the road to Emmaus following his resurrection when the scripture says that Jesus showed them how all of the Old Testament pointed to him. Now, I don't know why the 24th chapter of Luke is so short at that point. I I think I would have recorded that lecture. I'd love to hear that one day. Perhaps, Perhaps it works that way in glory. I'm not sure. But I'm going to focus this morning briefly on what John writes in the two verses I just read for you. Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. I mean, John's an old man. He's exiled on the island of Patmos because of his faithful witness concerning Jesus. And in a vision, John is led by the Holy Spirit into the throne room of heaven. And there he sees this scroll that's sealed with seven seals. And John has already been promised That he's going to be shown the unfolding of God's redemptive plans for the ages. And John realizes that this scroll contains the information he's been promised, but then we find him weeping because it at first appears that no one can open the scroll. But then John is told, Don't weep. There's one who is worthy. There's one who is worthy. I want to focus on what John is told about this one worthy to open the scroll. This one, of course, that we know as you read on through Revelation is, in fact, Jesus. I want us to focus on what John is told about Jesus because what John is told about Jesus Pointedly connects Jesus with the Old Testament. Because the two things that John is told is that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that he is the root of David. First, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, well, I gotta tell you one thing. If you know your Old Testament, it's really stunning. At least it's stunning to me to see Jesus and Judah linked. I mean that's stunning. Judah's a mess. I mean, I I mean, he's one of my heroes because of the great change that takes place in his life, but the man is a mess. I mean, Judah is the one who initiated the sale of Joseph into slavery. Judah also married a Canaanite. Judah, contrary to his father's wishes and God's command, marries a Canaanite. And it's Judah who has an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law. Judah! Of course, it's also Judah who, thank God, is the one whose heart is so changed that 20 years later he offers to become the slave of this prime minister of Egypt that he doesn't yet realize is his brother Joseph. But he offers to become the slave of the prime minister of Egypt in place of his brother Benjamin. And doing so, of course, you know, he becomes the first person in Scripture to offer up his life for the sake of another. That's Judah. So, in Genesis 49, Judah's blessed by his father Jacob, and his daddy calls him a lion's cub, and then his father declares the scepter, which of course is a symbol of sovereign authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's the peoples, plural. Now, this prophecy is initially fulfilled some 800 years later when David, who was of the house of Judah, becomes king of Israel. And in 2 Samuel, verse 7, the Lord promises David that his house, that is the tribe of Judah, his kingdom, his throne, will last forever. And then... 400 years later, when Babylon overruns Judah and Jerusalem, it appears that the line of David has ended. And in truth, no further descendant of David in the Old Testament Scriptures ever reigns as king over God's covenant people. But then, of course... A thousand years after David, 600 years after the Babylonian invasion, a virgin, a virgin named Mary, who is of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, she is told, to you a son will be born to whom will be given the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, eighteen hundred years earlier, Jacob called Judah a lion's cub. Judah is no; uh, Jesus is no cub. He is, in fact, the lion of Judah, the one to whom all tribute is to come, to whom all people will prove obedient. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Then again, in Revelation five verse five, not only. Is he the descendant of David? John is told that this one worthy to open the scroll is also the root of David. The root. Now, we've already talked about the fact that, you know, the line of David appears to be cut off in 600 B.C., But in Isaiah 6 verse 13, the prophet foresees that while the mighty oak tree of David's kingdom is cut down, a stump is left in the ground. It appears to be a dead stump. But Isaiah tells you that within that stump, that stump representing the roots of the Davidic kingdom still firmly planted in the good soil, Within that stump remains a holy seed. And from this seed, you're told, in Isaiah chapter 11, there will burst forth a shoot, a branch that will bear fruit. And then a hundred years after Isaiah, the Lord tells you through another prophet in Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and he'll deal wisely and he'll execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is the name by which you will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, keeping all of that in mind, all of this talk about this shoot coming up from the stump of David, this branch that will appear. Matthew 2 verse 23, you're told... That the scriptures, the words of the prophet are fulfilled by Jesus being called a Nazarene. What a strange passage. It's really strange. I mean, how does Jesus being called a Nazarene fulfill prophecy? Well, some suggest that it may refer to the fact that, that people from Nazareth were despised and Jesus would therefore be despised being a Nazarene. But I also want you to know, and I'm, I'm, I'm fairly well convinced of this. I'm, I'm not ready to die for this, but I'm pretty well convinced of this. I just find it intriguing that the word for Nazareth is netzer, and the word for branch is nezer. And Jesus being called a Nazarene, a Netzer, may well tie him to the Old Testament prophecies that there is coming a Nazar, a branch, the promise that one will be born of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, who will be the Nezer that is to come. Now, you can wrestle with that and Others can explain to you why I'm not correct at this point. But I am. So, so here in Revelation chapter 5, here in Revelation chapter 5, John is told that John is, uh, that Jesus is both the Lion of, the Ju- uh, of Judah and the Root of David. But then you go to verse 6, and now it's John who's talking. And it's John who's describing Jesus for us. And John says, I looked, and there was a lamb standing, but looking as if it had been slain, and yet very much alive, because as John's already been told back in verse 5, this one that John is describing is the conqueror. But here he is, a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, and yet very much alive, standing erect. So I can't can't read that. I cannot read that passage in Revelation and not hear John the baptizer proclaiming about Jesus for all to hear, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now think about that. That's one grown man talking to another grown man. This one grown man talking to another grown man, and this one grown man looks at this other grown man, and dares to say in front of other people who can hear him, "Behold the Lamb of God." It's pretty weird. The only thing that keeps that from being weird is that you know the Old Testament. It's the only thing that keeps that from being just absolutely weird. It's because you know the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, John's words are just, well, they're just almost silly. But. In light of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the events of the first Passover, you understand that the baptizer is telling you that Jesus has come to be the final and perfect Lamb. He has come to offer himself up in your place to pay the penalty for your sinful rebellion against the one by whom and for whom you were made. And he has come. So by grace through faith in him you might be delivered from darkness and walk in the light of his eternal and unchanging truths. Revelation chapter 5 is just saturated with the Old Testament. Jesus is the lion of Judah. He's the root of David. He's the lamb that was slain but is very much now alive. It's just saturated with the old. Why do I tell you that? Because these scriptures weren't written by one guy in a period of two or three years, making sure that he carefully ties everything together. These scriptures are written over a period of 1,400 years by 40 or more authors, and yet it all comes together. It all agrees. And here in Revelation 5, the Scripture is just saturated with the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the God-man you worship, you love, and adore. He is the God-man whose word is for you the words of life both now and forevermore. He is the God-man to whom you give your all. This is the God-man to whom you sing. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days, all my hours. Let's pray. Father, may we listen to what we sing. May the words of our mouth reflect the true meditations of our hearts, and may they therefore be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray.